Have you ever felt, as you have listened to the news or talked with friends, a sense of despair about the church? Have you thought about the fact that perhaps the church's best days are behind it as we see persecution, marginalization, and hostility even here in America? Perhaps you would like to go back to the old days when the church was honored, when the church was respected, and that would provide the Lord with more opportunity to bring about His church here in America. If you have ever been tempted by that, even fleetingly, then our text is for you this morning. Because this morning, in the first half of chapter 8, we will see that God is building His church, God is working His will, no matter what the circumstances are. We're going to see three sets of circumstances and God working in each one of them. We will see the bad. We will see the good. We will even see the ugly. And we'll see how God is in charge, working His will at each way. And let's now go before the Lord and ask His blessing upon the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would impress upon us the truth of Your Word. We ask, O Lord, that You would cause us not merely to hear it, not merely to read it, but that we would mark it, Lord, that we would digest it, meditate upon it, that we would be changed by it. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now our text this morning is Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 25. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient for us. And it is completely authoritative. Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. 
And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thus far the reading of God's word. We come now to another juncture in the life of the church. As we've seen in the past weeks, the church has had some inner turmoil as Ananias and Sapphira have tried to deceive the Holy Spirit. We've seen persecution come to the church and specifically to one wing of the church, that is the Hellenists, those Jews who had been scattered abroad and lived outside of the Promised Land, who perhaps knew Greek better than Hebrew and now are back in the Holy Land, back in Jerusalem and have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that culminate in an accusation against Stephen. We saw Stephen defend himself and the work of God. And then we saw a violent response as Stephen himself was killed by stoning by the Sanhedrin. And now we see here at the beginning of chapter 8 the follow-on to that persecution. And it reminds us again that the church is not always in a place of comfort. I think sometimes we can tend to forget that as we look back on our recent history and we see all of the rights and liberties that we have been afforded. We see the ability to construct churches and not see them burnt down. To go into the marketplace and to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and not be shouted down or have things thrown at us. To not be thrown into jail because we have been baptized. But you see, the church goes through persecution. And it may well be that here in America, persecution may be coming. There are signs of it in the land. As in the shadow of 9-11, a mosque is being prepared and built. 
And politicians fall over themselves for tolerance. But little do we know of a small Orthodox church that is also trying to be rebuilt and has been rejected by some of the same politicians. You see, persecution, difficulty, and trial can come even to us in our midst, but that does not stop the work of God. And we see that first as we see the bad. The bad here is Saul. Now, we're getting a preview of just how effective the work of God is because this instance, this prototype of the bad, Saul, will soon become the great missionary of the church. We'll see that in a few weeks. But right now, Saul is a prototype of all that is against the church. We're reminded at the beginning of this chapter that he approved of the execution, the death of Stephen. You may recall that it's very likely that that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin, that he was perhaps even the one who debated Stephen and lost in early chapter 6. And now, after having approved of his execution, a great persecution arises. And so, I want us to take a look here at the intended persecution that Saul and the others would bring about on the church. But I want you to think ahead a little bit, have in the front of your mind that there is intended persecution, but there is unintended evangelism that will result from it. First, in the intended persecution, we see that the opposition against the church is united. Now, this has not happened before. You remember when some wanted to stone Peter, Gamaliel stood up and said, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. We should let us see what God is doing here. And if it's of God, it'll persist, and if not, it'll go away. We've seen some conflict amongst the the Sadducees and the Pharisees, some wanting to push ahead, others hanging back. But now, all of Jerusalem, it seems, is united against the church. That's why it is a great persecution. See, Paul is armed with authority, he will tell us later in Acts He has received writs of arrest. He's not just going into people's homes by show of force. No, he has the equivalent of arrest warrants. And he doesn't need to give a Miranda warning. He just goes in with soldiers, kicks in doors, and drags people off. The opposition is united against the church. But it is also immediate. Notice when the persecution arose. On that day. There was no respite for the church. Stephen has been killed, and now persecution comes upon the church. And it is a great level of hostility. Saul is described here in a very colorful way. It said that he went ravaging the church, entering house after house. This word here for ravage, perhaps the most common way that it is used is the way an animal attacks a dead body. Perhaps you've had the displeasure to see that as you've been driving down a highway. You've seen an animal that's been hit by a car, and perhaps there is a bird, or if you're out in the country, there is a coyote that is ripping the flesh of that animal. That's what Saul is doing here. He is acting like a wild beast seeking to destroy the church wherever he can get the opportunity, ripping at its flesh, ripping at its muscle. 
Now, you'll notice too that he is trying to begin this. He is ravaging the church, but it is something that he is undertaking. It is a beginning and he is not able to accomplish it. Paul himself says this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, you know, brothers, that I tried to destroy the church. You see, Paul has every evil intention here. He has every intent to destroy the church, but God will not bring that about. He is fervent in his hostility. He has authority. Everyone is united. There is no way to stop the bad except if God stops it. And we'll see that God will. God will take it upon Himself to stop the wickedness of persecuting the church. So what happens as a result of this? Well, we can imagine that there are people who are maimed or hurt or killed. Perhaps people speak in hushed tones. People start to leave off from worship because they're afraid of being persecuted. All of the negative things we can think about. But Luke wants us to focus on something else. Luke says that because of this persecution, the church is scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They are scattered and they are going to be scattered far and wide. We will see soon they show up in Antioch. They show up in Cyprus. They show up in Egypt. The church is being scattered far and wide. But does that turn of phrase remind you of anything? That they were scattered to the regions of Judea and Samaria? Scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Well, if you don't recall, you might put your thumb here and flip back to Acts chapter 1 and you will see the great commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ that they are to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and then next in Judea and Samaria. That gives us a bit of a hint of who is behind this scattering. But we see it even in the Word itself. There are two types of scattering. There's the kind of scattering that you do to destroy something. Perhaps you receive some junk mail that you don't want anyone to get your name off of. And so you run it through the shredder and you take it and you scatter it abroad. You put a little of it in one garbage can and a little in another so no one will put it together. But there's another kind of scattering, another kind of biblical scattering. We see it in the parable of the sower. When the sower goes, and what does he do with the seed? He scatters it. Here, there, and everywhere. And why does he scatter it? That it might be planted. That it might grow and that it might bear fruit ten, twenty, one hundredfold. That is the kind of scattering that's happening here. It's the same family of word. It's the same word that we get diaspora from. That is, scattered about to settle. That's what God is doing here through Saul and the persecution of the church. You see, the church had prayed that it would be outward focused, that it would take the message of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And here is lesson number eight. And be careful what you pray for. Because God answers their prayer. They want to be outward focused. Is that your prayer? That you would seek us to be an outward focused church. To be open to visitors. Even as 
Andrew prayed earlier this morning. Well, if you want to be outward focused, if you want to take the gospel to the world, then you better have at least an overnight bag packed. You better have gas in your tank because you don't know where God's going to send you. Now, He may not persecute you. He may take your job from you and give you another job in another state. He may cause you to go to a school that you weren't intending to go to. You had your heart set on another one. You may join a Boy Scout troop other than the one you'd planned on. Perhaps you're playing baseball or soccer with kids that you didn't think you would be. But you see, God will scatter you. He will take you about so that you can take the Word of God. This is how the Lord works. The great church father Tertullian put it this way in the context of persecution. He said, and I'll paraphrase, the more you mow us down, the more we grow. You see, Christians are a bit like grass. The flower fades. It's not of much worth. But the more that the world mows down the church, the more it grows. It comes back stronger. It comes back thicker. That's the way God builds His church. We may not expect it to happen this way, but it does. We may be saddened when we hear of Christians who seek to bring eye care and medical emergency care to a land benighted by Islam. And when they are butchered in cold blood by cowards who worship the devil, we stop and we think, oh, that's too bad. I wonder if anything will happen in Afghanistan. Instead, we should be thinking that this is the time for Jesus Christ to shine, to show that men and women are willing to give their lives to show the love of Jesus. You see, God works even in the midst of the bad. They go out, and they go out preaching the gospel, our text says. But it's, it's actually a little bit different than that, if you would look here at verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. And we could get the impression from this text that they were scattered, and their deacons, their elders, and their pastors held services. But you see, that's not really what's happening here. There is a word for preaching. It is the word that means to herald something, and that is not this word. This word perhaps could be better paraphrased. I will borrow a term from Dr. Derek Thomas. They're not preaching. They're gospeling. They are bringing the gospel. They are evangelizing. You see, this is an every-member ministry. They are going out into Samaria, into Judea, and they are bringing the gospel. And you see, this is the good. The good is that in the midst of the bad, God scatters His church. And they go with the gospel. They do not go empty-handed. And Philip is one example of these people who go out with the gospel. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And I think this is a verse that is one of these verses that we read it and we lose the effect of it. We say, okay, yeah, Philip, he went to Samaria, he preached, okay, and he did have crowds. Verse 5 should blow us away. Because you see, Philip goes out and he takes the gospel to the people perhaps most hated by the Jews. 
Do you remember that little paraphrase that John gives in John chapter 4 when he tells us the story of the woman at the well? He says in a little parenthetical, now you know Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As a matter of fact, they so have no dealings that if they had to get from the north to the south, they went hundreds of miles out of their way, crossing a river just so they wouldn't have to set foot in Samaria. When the time came to rebuild the temple after the exile and the Samaritans offered to help, the Jews told them to go take a hike. They couldn't be bothered with them. You see, Samaritans are ingrates. They're half-breeds. They're any other bad epithet that you could use. They're not real Jews. They don't deserve the Word of God. They don't deserve the Gospel. But you see, Philip thinks otherwise. And he shows how the Gospel transforms and how it is more than just advanced Judaism. It is the power of God to save all throughout the world. And so he crosses cultural barriers. He crosses religious barriers. He crosses barriers of hatred. All to obey the command of Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Are there people or certain areas of town that you wouldn't be found dead in? That you want no business with? Perhaps it's foreign enemies. Perhaps you are tempted to think about those who are Muslims or those who are Buddhists or those who worship themselves, that they are beyond the Gospel. But you see, God, through Philip, says the good of the church, the good that God is working, goes beyond any barrier we can set up. And so Philip goes to Samaria and he brings real racial reconciliation. Do you notice what he does? He doesn't hold a summit on Jewish-Samaritan relations. He doesn't set up focus groups on how we can tear down racial barriers. He doesn't try and understand their worship on Mount Gerizim. No, he goes there only with the Gospel. It seems so simple. It's almost... But you see, the foolishness of God is the power of God. Do you desire racial reconciliation in our land? Do you desire generational reconciliation in our land? Do you desire to see a oneness and a unity? Then the only way that that can come about is by preaching Jesus and the Gospel. It will not come... It will not come by the world's ways. But you see, Philip comes and he brings real Gospel reconciliation. And that brings not only the Word of Jesus, but the power and kingdom of Jesus. Look here, the crowds in verse 6, with one accord, you know how Luke just loves this word, it's en masse, one big group, they paid attention to what was being said. That word for paid attention is to hold on strongly, to grasp. We might even say they hung on His every word. They were mesmerized. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And not only did they hear, but they saw. For Philip's ministry is like Peter's ministry, is like Jesus' ministry. It's accompanied by the signs of the power of the Gospel. The lame are healed. The demon-possessed have their demons cast out and they cry out. 
You see, this is showing that the power of the Gospel is not limited to Jerusalem. It is not limited to Judea. It happens in Samaria. God is showing His power. God will show His power today as the Gospel goes forward. Now, He shows it in a different way because this is an epic making. It is a change in the structure of the church and the kingdom of God. And so this is highlighter, italics, bold, in red. But God also still today gives signs of His power. So when we see someone who is bound in the shackles of sin, give praise to God. Someone who's lived a life of debauchery, villainy, and illegality, come to praise the Lord God and to serve Him. We see it in families that were torn apart by bitterness, hostility, reunited. We see real change and the power of God. And when we do, we must praise Him. We must acknowledge His power and see that He is the one that brings about this good. The kingdom comes as the people hear the kingdom comes as the people see, but more than that, the permanence of it is seen in salvation coming to Samaria. Look down with me at verse 14. You see, the apostles heard that at Samaria they had received the Word of God. The Samaritans had believed. A great group of them. They were raptured by what Philip had to say, but it took root in their heart. And that belief followed with an expression of obedience as they were baptized here. They, were, they had received the Word of God and they were baptized. Jesus had been preached by Philip. The kingdom had been preached. And in verse 12 we see that they had been baptized both men and women. Now, just a quick aside. I want you to see how God shows He is always at work. Look back up at verse 3. Did you see how hateful Saul was? That he persecuted and imprisoned and dragged off not only men, but also what? Women. He intended to destroy both men and women. But now we see here God intends to save both what? Men and women. You see, God is redeeming all that others seek to destroy. God is bringing about a people here in Samaria. They believe. They obey and are baptized. And as a result, we see in verse 8 that great joy comes to the city. There is much joy in Samaria because Jesus is there. Is there great joy in your home? That great joy will come not from your finances, not from your satisfaction in your employment. Not even from the level of obedience of your children. This kind of joy only comes when Jesus is present. If you would know great joy in your home, you must know Jesus. You must believe in Him. You must obey Him and follow His Word. That is where great joy is found. Well, we've seen the bad. We've seen the good. 
And now Luke introduces us to what is downright ugly. Ugly in a spiritual sense. We see it here in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon. Now, we should already be prepared for a problem. Because the exact same words, except for the name, are used in Acts 5, verse 1. But there was a man named Ananias. And we know what happened to him. So we're already waiting. Luke is setting us up for what is this man, this certain man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and he had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. This man, this man is someone who is full of himself. Now, do you notice Philip goes about drawing attention to whom? To Jesus. Simon goes about drawing attention to whom? Himself. Can you imagine this? As he walks around saying, you know, I'm somebody great. Want to see a trick? Never guess how I do it. Want to see my power? Hey, you, leave me alone. Put a trick on you. Put a hex on you. You know, I'm powerful. I'm in charge. I'm in control. And we see even more than that. They called Him the power of God that is called great. Now, this power is the same word for authority. So, they had an idea, probably because Simon gave it to them, that Simon was actually an incarnation, a manifestation of God in Samaria. He might even have played off of Jesus' story. It would go like this as he performed for the crowds. Well, you know, in Jerusalem, they have Jesus. But in Samaria, you have Simon. You see, he builds himself up. He's so full of himself. But the problem is, he is not what he seems. Look with me at verse 13. Now, even Simon himself believed, Luke tells us. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And then the apostles come down. He's already worked up a bit into a frenzy. He sees these miracles. You can almost sense him salivating. I wish I could do that. Got to get Philip aside and find out what his tricks are. Maybe we can exchange notes. And then... Peter and John come down and do something he's never seen before, ever. The Holy Spirit comes down on the Samaritans. And what's his first reaction? Is his first reaction, Wow! Praise God! No. Is his first reaction, What a blessing upon God's people! No. His first reaction is, How can I do that? I'll... I'll pay you for it. How can I do that? I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to show this. We might ask along with John the Baptist, what did you come out to see, Simon? Did you come out to see miracle workings? Did you come out with your checkbook? You see, Simon is said to have believed he's even been baptized. But he's more concerned with the show. Now, I think sometimes we have trouble with this and we say, well, you know... We're not sure what's going on. Simon could be a weak believer. 
I can't imagine that someone would say they believe and be baptized and then would be caught up in, in showmanship and in miracles and in, in abuse of money. And if we think that way, I think we have never spent some time watching the Trinity Broadcast Network. Because this is what televangelism is all about. They're professing Jesus Christ, they are baptized, but they don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in justification by faith, but what they believe in is, send me $10 and you'll get 100 Let me bow my head and someone whom nobody knows in Topeka, Kansas will be cured. You see, it's all about the show. Simon is not what he seems because really what he still wants is control. He's upset, I think, that the people are paying attention to Philip. Do you notice that? It says here in verse 6 that the crowds with one accord paid attention to Philip. Whereas in the past, look at verse 10, they had paid attention to Simon. Simon, in a very real sense, even though he is a Samaritan magician that would probably be stoned by the Sanhedrin, in his heart, he is the same as the Sanhedrin. He wants control. He wants to be in charge. He wants power. He's no different. Of course, he's different on the outside. He's a bit cleaner from his baptism. Perhaps his language is a bit better after his profession. But he's not changed where it matters. You see, true religion, J.C. Ryle writes, is a matter of the heart. Not of the mouth, nor even of the outward profession, but it is a matter of the heart. And Peter notices this. You see, he comes up, he's all enthusiastic, Simon is, to speak to Peter. How can I have this, this miracle working power? And I shudder to think what would happen if Simon came into most American churches today. Well, let me tell you, Simon, this is how you can have a very effective ministry. You have to buy these books, and you say these prayers, and you do these things. Now, lest you think that I could only criticize or chastise from the Word those who are outside the walls, and you have perhaps certain books in your mind, vapid, shallow books. We can fall temptation to this too, Christian. Someone comes to us and makes a profession of faith, and rather than see what is in the heart, we say, if you study these five good reformed books and memorize these ten things and do in this fashion, then your ministry will be blessed. Nothing wrong with reading books. Nothing wrong with memorizing. The heart. That's what we're after. We're after the heart. Whether it be an adult that comes through the doors or parents, whether it be your children. Get their heart. Don't get their memory. Don't get their obedience. Get their heart. See that their heart is one that longs after Jesus. Because you see, we can be self-deceived, even as Simon is. And Peter rebukes him in the strongest language possible. He says, May your silver perish with you, 
Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God. Pretty strong. The Greek is actually a bit stronger. This is not flippant. The text actually says a variation of this. Peter actually says to Simon, to hell with you and your money. And he means that in a literal way. It's not a curse. He says, you are headed on the road to hell, to eternal destruction, because you would rather have power and authority than Jesus. That should scare us. Anytime we become self-satisfied, Anytime we want to focus upon ourselves, Peter's ears should, words should ring in our ears that we need Jesus. We don't need anything else. He says, you have no part nor lot at all in this, Simon. And Simon, in a very soft way, proves Peter's point. He has, you may notice that I saw it as we were reading through Proverbs 15, it said that the wicked has no love for reproof. That's Simon. Because Peter says to him in very strong terms, you are on the road to hell, you must repent. You must pray that the Lord would change your heart. And you know what Simon's response is? Well, well, you're the professional clergy. Couldn't you pray for me? That happens, beloved. People walk up to me who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and find out I'm a pastor and ask me to pray for them. As if that would change them. Now, I'm happy to pray about them and for the Lord's work in them. But you see, the prayer of someone else is not a substitute for your own repentance and faith. Peter is told, Simon, he must repent. He must have faith. But sadly, Simon is not affected. Well, is this the end then? Is this all that we see? Remember earlier I told you we saw God at work both in the bad and in the good. Where is God in the midst of this ugly? Look at verse 25. Now when they, that is Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You see, what had happened was, Philip had brought the gospel to a people who had never known the gospel before and who weren't supposed to get the gospel. And then Peter and John had to come down and see it. They had to verify what was going on. And they find someone who is ugly in heart, who is faking it. But they don't become disillusioned. I think the most damage that has ever been done to the church has been done by hypocrites. And the most hypocritical thing someone can say is, I don't have time for Jesus or the Bible or church because the church is full of hypocrites. Yes, it is. Get over it. The whole world is full of hypocrites. They're fake football fans. They're fake hobbyists. Get over it. And you see, Peter and John did. They didn't go home discouraged because of what happened to Simon. They went out and redoubled their efforts. They remembered what had happened. They had their eyes on the prize. They saw Jesus proclaimed and people saved and they wanted to see that go further. That's God at work. Only God can make 
Christians get excited in the midst of ugly hypocrisy. Can you be excited in the midst of ugly hypocrisy? As you look out and see the church hypocritical, the church as it falls away from the Scriptures, does that make you want to redouble your efforts to tell others about Jesus? It should. May the Lord grant it to us to remember the mission, no matter what the circumstances, bad, good, or ugly, that He is in control and that His gospel will go forward. 